This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let us pray. Lord, you have called us not to be faithless, but to be believers. Renew us by the power of your Holy Spirit that we might confess you as our Lord and our God this morning. Amen. You may be seated. This past week, Ed Stetzer, who's a researcher for the Barna Group and a professor at Wheaton College, ran a piece in Christianity Today in which he expressed his dismay about the number of Christians on his social media feed who are sharing false information and conspiracy theories about the coronavirus. There are false cures and diagnostics that have made their way all the way around the internet. I've seen a lot of them in my own social media feed. Some of these are actually quite entertaining as long as you don't take them too seriously. My favorite one that I've come across is the claim that snorting cocaine sterilizes one's nostrils against the coronavirus. Don't try this one at home, folks. Many conspiracy theories as to the origins of the virus have also circulated, including that the virus was intentionally created as an instrument of biological warfare by China or alternatively by the CIA, or that it was created as a population control scheme by the British government or alternatively by Bill Gates or that it was somehow related to the implementation of 5G wireless technologies. And unfortunately, Stetzer said in his article that Christians seem to be disproportionately fooled by these conspiracy theories. Stetzer worries that Christians are coming to be seen as careless with the truth because they haven't been properly vetting or fact-checking the information that we share. And he's concerned that before the watching world, we are developing a reputation for being gullible and overly credulous. And he reminds his readers that God has not called us to be easily fooled and that gullibility is not a Christian virtue. Now this article is on my mind this second week of Eastertide because every year on this Sunday we spend time as a church meditating on the story of St. Thomas and what it means for our faith. Because while the scriptures insist upon the necessity of true and genuine faith in Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life, they do not ask For blind faith, the faith that is commended by Scripture is not credulity. I want to say that we completely misunderstand the story of St. Thomas if we think that it is about Thomas being rebuked for needing evidence to believe in the resurrection. We misunderstand this story if we think that Thomas was being unfaithful by withholding his judgment based on the testimony of the other disciples. And we misunderstand this story if we think it is a story commending faith as a kind of leap into the dark. Actually, the Gospel of John and the rest of the New Testament expect us to come to this central and foundational claim of the Christian faith that Christ was resurrected from the dead with a healthy skepticism. Because as N.T. Wright likes to say, The discovery that dead people stay dead was not first made by philosophers of the Enlightenment. People in the ancient world were just as skeptical as we are about a claim that someone has come back from the dead. And so the authors of the New Testament actually tell us that we should proportion our belief according to the evidence that is presented to us. It's not the evidence of sight, but it is evidence nonetheless The New Testament lays out for us not just the story of Christ's ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension, but it corroborates this story with the account of eyewitnesses. Now Luke is most clear about this point. 
And he tells his readers at the beginning of his gospel that he has consulted eyewitnesses and he has drawn up an orderly account of the story of the Messiah. And then in his second volume, the Acts of the Apostles, he begins by telling the reader that after his suffering, Jesus showed himself to the disciples and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. So Christ proved his resurrection by appearing in bodily form among his disciples for 40 days after the resurrection. We have many of these accounts laid out for us in the Gospels themselves and in the book of Acts. His appearance to Mary Magdalene and the other Marys. His appearance to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. His appearance to the disciples gathered in the upper room. His appearance to the twelve on the shores of Lake Galilee. His appearance to St. Paul. And by the time that St. Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians, probably around 50 A.D., these post-resurrection appearances had been stylized into a formula that could be memorized and then transmitted, handed down to others as a tradition that would help those investigating the gospel to come to believe and to help Christians continue to believe in the resurrection. Here's what St. Paul says. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or to Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. And what St. Paul is saying here is that the objectivity and the historicity of Christ's bodily appearances to the disciples post-resurrection is as central a pillar of the Christian faith as the events of Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection are. Christ appeared not as a ghost, not as a spirit, not as an angel, but as himself to his disciples in his own body, which was the same body in which he had suffered and been crucified. But that body, which was recognizably his own, was also marvelously changed. It was a body that had somehow not become less, but more substantial. It was a body that was no longer ruled by death, but which had become deathless. This was not a mere resuscitation. That was clear to the disciples. It was what it looks like for a mortal body to put on immortality. It shocked the disciples. It electrified them to see the resurrection of the dead, which faithful Jews believed would come at the end of history, present in their midst. And the early Christians therefore began to call Christ's resurrected body recognizable but made immortal the first fruits of the general resurrection that was to come. It was for many different people and in many different places over 40 days that were able to speak speak with and touch and see the risen Christ that galvanized and animated the early church. This was the evidence that gave them the warrant that they needed to believe in Christ's resurrection and to tell all who have come after to believe in Christ and to have life in his name. St. Paul says that these appearances are of first importance, or we might also translate that word of highest or greatest importance. If St. Paul is to be believed, 
and St. John too in our passage today, then Stetzer is right. Gullibility is not a Christian virtue, and facts are our friends. We're not being asked to believe without evidence. Rather, we're taught in the pages of the New Testament to, to conduct a thorough investigation, not just once, but ongoingly, and that doubt and questioning are important moments both in coming to faith and in sustaining one's faith in Christ. In verse 31 of our passage from today, St. John tells us that Jesus performed many signs that are not written down in this gospel. But he's recorded these signs so that you may come to believe. And actually, some of the ancient manuscripts of the gospel of John say, so that you may continue to believe. And both ways of putting it, you know, whether it's come to believe or continue to believe, are totally accurate. Those who are investigating the claims of Jesus do well to consider the evidence. But those of us who follow Jesus, who continue to walk by faith and not by sight in this life, also need to go over this evidence regularly so that we may be assured that what we believe is true. The entirety of our faith hinges upon the historicity of these events, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So it matters that we not treat them as pious, inspirational stories, but as the hinge of history, the thing in which the whole cosmos holds together. As the commentator Dale Bruner says, when we're talking about the gospel accounts of the resurrection, we are reading world history's major facts and not inspirational stories. So honest doubt and questioning is not what Thomas is rebuked for in this passage. Our translations don't help us see that very well. When Thomas places his hands in Jesus' wounds and sees his body, which is, of course, recognizably the same, but also transformed, and when he speaks with Jesus, he receives the proof that he needs in order to believe. And our translations usually translate what Jesus says next to him as something like, stop doubting and believe. But that's actually not what the Greek says. It says, stop being an unbeliever or stop being faithless and be a believer or be faithful. This word for unbeliever or faithless, apistos, is the same word that Jesus uses in various places in the Gospels to describe the crowds and the Jewish authorities who refused to believe him in his ministry. So what's happened to Thomas in this account, at the beginning of this account, is that he stopped listening to Jesus. Jesus told the disciples many times and in many different places that the Messiah must suffer and die and be raised again on the third day. Now the gospel accounts are very clear that none of the disciples understood what he meant by that at the time. And it's equally clear that all of them were dismayed and terrified when Christ was arrested and crucified. And so our passage today begins by saying that they'd locked the door because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities. And yet, they continued to meet in spite of their terror, in spite of their doubt. They continued to gather and assemble together to worship just as they always had. But Thomas, and the text makes clear that he's one of the 12, one of the leaders, has stopped showing up. He's dropped out. The fact that Thomas is not at the assembly with the other disciples is not an insignificant detail for John. It is how John tells us that Thomas has despaired and ceased to believe in Jesus. His questioning does not come from a place of seeking, but from a place of cynicism and hardness, woundedness, incredulity. And this is why Thomas was not with the rest of the disciples when Jesus came in their midst. 
Thomas is not here acting as an honest seeker, an honest inquirer after the truth at the beginning of this passage. He is certain, actually, about what the truth is. It's that Jesus is dead and he's not coming back. Thomas's rebuttal is not a demand for evidence. It's a defensive brush-off. It's an abrupt dismissal from someone who has been disappointed and disillusioned by having his hopes dashed, his hopes that the prophecies that were made to Israel about the Messiah were finally coming true. Now, we know many Thomases in our age. The theologian Jamie Smith has said that for many in our age, invincible doubt has become, in a sense, the new faith. That truth cannot be known for certain is the only certainty. In an interview on his recent book on St. Augustine, Smith says, while you want to give room for your doubts, I think the danger is swinging to an almost mirror of fundamentalism, where doubts become the thing we are most certain about. We ought to have compassion for people who have experienced trauma and brokenness and so who are filled with doubts. But at the same time, he says, we should be careful not to fetishize our doubts. So what Smith is urging us to do is to not treat our doubts as if they were certainties, to not wall off our hearts from the truth because we have been burned, but to remain open to persuasion. And that transition, that transition, the the transition from closeness to openness is actually what the story of St. Thomas is about. And I I wish John would have been more forthcoming about what finally persuaded Thomas to investigate the disciples' claim that they had seen the Lord. All we have is this really understated, low-key sentence in verse 26. On the eighth day, while his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Now what this means is, the following week, at the appointed time, when the disciples came together for worship, Thomas showed up. Thomas came back to church to check it out. Here's how I imagine the conversation that went down between the disciples and Thomas. The disciples show up at Thomas's house, you know, and they say, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas says, I don't believe it, and I won't believe it until I see it for myself. And they probably said back to him, well, then get your butt up and come to church. So Thomas has to sit with this skepticism for an entire week until the first day of the week again. And there must have been during that interval some internal wrestling and some calculating that was going on. Because things have shifted enough inside of him by the following Sunday that when the disciples gather again, there he is. And Christ reveals himself to him when the church is gathered and assembled. In part, my friends, this is why Christians throughout the ages have insisted upon the centrality of gathered worship in word and sacrament as the foremost way in which we Christians know Christ. When Christians gather together in imitation of the disciples, that is when Christ promises to come in the midst of us by the power of his Spirit. Now, this is not to denigrate personal devotions, not by any means. It's not to tell you that they're not important, but they're not enough. Christians come together to worship communally because that's how we know Jesus. That is how we commune with Christ as we are fed by him in word and sacrament. We know the truth communally, as a body, in a way we could never know it as individuals. Because when we are gathered for worship, the Lord breathes his spirit on his church, just as he did here in the Gospel of John. And he stirs us up to believe and to have life in his name. And John illustrates this point marvelously right here in this story. I want you to notice, too, how gentle Jesus is with Thomas. 
What a marvelous accommodation Jesus is making to Thomas' incredulity in this passage. Thomas has managed to rouse himself out of his despair enough to be present in the assembly. That's what Thomas can do. But Christ is gentle with him. He allows him to feel the wounds in his body, to see and to feel that Christ is recognizably himself and yet different, that he has been raised in his body, immortal. I imagine that this process of investigation and discovery was really slow. That Christ was really patient with him as Thomas probes and he searches and then he finally makes his confession, my Lord and my God. And Christ is gentle with us too as we investigate. But just as for Thomas, this searching is not something that happens mostly in private. It is something that takes place in the assembly in the context of gathering for worship. As Christians, we believe that the faith is personal, but it is never private. Thomas says, my Lord and my God, but he does not mean it like we now talk about my, you know, my truth and your truth. The truth, which is independent of Thomas and its objective, that Jesus has been raised in his body from the dead and has been clothed with immortality, has captured Thomas and it has become his confession The faith of the church, which is gathered around him in worship, has become his faith. Now, sometimes we're unpersuaded, we're doubting, we're uncertain as we show up for worship. But it is in this faithful act of showing up and in being surrounded by others who are likewise on this journey of believing and confessing and singing and hearing the gospel proclaimed and receiving the sacraments that we come to know Christ and we come to be convinced by, by the uncertainty of the truth claims that are made about him. It's not primarily off on our own considering the testimonies of the apostles or weighing the probabilities that we come to place our faith in Christ. It is as he breathes his Holy Spirit on us in corporate worship, as we pray and sing and hear the word proclaimed and receive the sacrament, that these testimonies become persuasive to our hearts. Here's what Jamie Smith says in that same interview. In some ways, we need the guardrails of showing up for prayer and worship. There's the stability of God's presence in the sacraments, and you just sort of bring your doubts to the altar. There's going to be seasons in every Christian pilgrimage where you shouldn't be surprised to walk in that space. Some days I show up at church with my doubts and I'm kind of counting on you to sing for me. This is really critical, my friends. We know Jesus together, corporately, as a body. And then we know personally as we are part of that body. And of course, we can't do this right now. We can't come together for corporate worship. All of you who are hearing this message are doing so from your living rooms or from somewhere else. Some of you are undoubtedly listening in with your families. Some of you are probably watching alone. And my guess is that many of you are feeling doubtful too on this second week of Easter. We weren't together last week to keep vigil with the Marys at the tomb. We didn't hear the words of the exultant chanted. We didn't see the lights gradually raising, the sanctuary becoming filled with light. We didn't smell the incense slowly filling the sanctuary. We did not have the evidence of our senses this last week. What does that mean? Is Christ risen or isn't he? Is this real what we believe or isn't it? Is this virus? Is death? Is economic or social or political 
uncertainty and catastrophe more real than the resurrection of the Son of God? By no means. At some point, my friends, this stay-at-home order will be lifted and we will be free to meet again. And I pray that you will return again to ascension, that you will be here with me again to worship and pray and sing and hear the word of God proclaimed and to receive the sacrament together again because when that happens, the Spirit of God will be poured out powerfully on his people. We will believe, we will confess my Lord and my God, and we will have life in Jesus' name. We will know again with certainty once again as his body that this is the truest truth and the deepest reality of the cosmos. It is Jesus in whom all things hold together. Right now is the interval between when the disciples told Thomas, we have seen the Lord, and when Thomas encountered the Lord himself. I pray that just as Thomas wrestled and he sat with his questions during that week, that we will do the same while we are all quarantined. This is not dead time. This is not wasted time. This is a time when the Holy Spirit is sowing many, many things in our hearts and is stirring up many questions. But on the other side, my friends, let us rejoin together. Let us gather for worship again so that we may encounter the Lord in the power of his spirit. Let us look forward again to that time when we can gather and rejoice together that we too have seen the Lord and make our confession. My Lord and my God, he is risen. Hallelujah. Amen.